Welcome to the Smart Planning 101 Podcast, Episode 10. I'm Nicole Whip, and I'm your host. Hello, Smart Planners. I'm really excited to talk to you today about a topic that is really near and dear to my own heart, and that is pet planning. Now, this topic is so important because although there are so many of us that consider our pets to be just as much a part of our family as our children are, um, pets really don't have a good place in the legal world. In fact, most pets are considered to be no more important than other things that we call personal property, like your chairs and your clothes. And so even though these are living, breathing parts of our family, um, they don't occupy a special place in the law unless we make a place for them. And so as living, breathing things, our pets really are very vulnerable when we don't do planning for them. Also, I think it's really good to understand why this is important because there's a really lot of fun statistics about pets and pet ownership. Um, According to the American Pet Products Manufacturers Association, 63% of American households have pets. A survey conducted by the American Animal Hospital Association shows that 57% of pet owners say that if they were stranded on a desert island, they would prefer their pet as their sole companion. In 2012, we collectively spent $53 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars on pet care and $5 billion on gifts for our pets. Men actually spend on average more than women on their pets. So, you know, most of us wouldn't want to leave our pet behind or put them in a situation where they weren't properly cared for. But like so many things when it comes to planning, most people just assume that things are going to happen and they don't necessarily happen. And so today's episode is to talk about what should be done. To help me shed some light on this subject, I invited Peggy Hoyt, who is a nationally renowned expert on pet planning, to come speak with me today and to share with you her tips for pet planning. So welcome, Peggy Hoyt, to the Smart Planning 101 podcast. Thanks for joining me. You are so welcome, and it's a pleasure to be here. So Peggy, for the listeners that don't know very much about you, can you give us a little information about your background and where you're coming from in this conversation about pet planning? Just tell us about you. Well, interestingly, there was a time when I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, because I've always loved animals. And my dad happened to be the president of the Humane Society of the United States. So I had this perfect entree into the world of animals and animal welfare. And so I thought, well, I'll be a vet. Won't that be great? And then I got sidetracked, as we sometimes do in our high school, early college years, and ended up not going to veterinary school, but instead getting a degree in marketing, and then an MBA in finance, and then ultimately going to law school. But I was still trying to figure out how do I weave the animal thing into my life because it's something that's really important to me. And at a uh, conference that I was attending of estate planning attorneys, um, talking with another friend, uh, the idea came up to write a book called All My Children Wear Fur Coats, How to Leave a Legacy for Your Pet. And then that was just perfect for me because it gave me the opportunity to think about 
all of the ways that we can include our pets as part of our legacy. And not just what happens if we pass away and our pets live on, but also ways that we can memorialize our pets during um, our lifetime. So if our pet dies before we do, and then just thinking about natural disasters and other ways that we can protect our pets. And that book, by the way, just for the audience, is amazing. I own it. And I very much thank you for writing it because I think that's like so many things in this world. It provides an opportunity for you to think about things in a way that you hadn't considered it before and to realize really what's important. And for many of us, our pets are very important to us. They're, they're a part of our families. They are our families for some of us. So when I say all my children wear fur coats, that's the truth. Um, I have six dogs and three horses and one, I say, lonely and brave cat um, at the moment. And um, I just can't imagine life without my furry face kids. Right, because your cat's actually probably the one that's in charge of all these other animals, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the first day that he arrived, I think he smacked every dog in the face. And that was the end of having to train the dogs. And now he rules the roost. That's great. I love it. So, okay. For those of us that love our pets like children, like yourself, like myself, like so many of my clients and your clients, why do we need to engage in pet planning? We have to absolutely engage in pet planning because we can't assume, not even for one second, that even the people that are closest to us, our spouses, our children, our life partners, we cannot assume that they will be responsible for our pets if something happens to us. We have to create structures that absolutely ensure that that's going to happen the way we want it to. So, Peggy, then for that reason, what are some of the considerations that we have to have in planning for our pets? So, well, just to pick up on that a little bit further, though. So I've seen situations where people assumed that their spouse was going to be the one that kept their pet. And maybe they did for a little while, but then life got in the way and a new partner arrived and things didn't go exactly the way that perhaps the deceased person would have liked. And then that animal went on to you know, not be as an important part of the family as it was for that one person. Um, I mentioned to you recently that one of my friends passed away and she had a young dog, a puppy. Um, and, you know, my concern was what's going to happen to this puppy if something happens to you? And I think the expectation and rightfully so was that her husband was going to keep their puppy. Only once she passed away and he became a single person who had to go back to work, who has a very demanding career, a puppy sitting at home all day long in a empty condo for 10 or 12 hours a day didn't seem like a very appealing idea. And um, since I was one of her best friends and because I had a house full of dogs, the logical situation for him was to say, Peggy, can't you take this dog? And of course I did. So my numbers keep changing. My children keep changing. But really, it would have been more appropriate for her to think about 
okay, I'm going to assume my husband's going to take care of my pets, but if he can't, making sure that there's a plan in place, because God forbid, what if something had happened to him first? And then here we've got this puppy that needs a home. Oh, another very similar situation. Um, it was in the news recently in the Daytona Beach area. Lady who's very active in um, therapy dogs was found um, drowned. Oh. And she was the mother of five dogs. And every single one of those dogs had to be placed. And fortunately, she was part of a network of dog-loving people that they were able to place all those dogs. But wouldn't it have been perfect if she had had a plan that said, I nominate this person to be in charge of finding permanent homes for my animals. And, oh, by the way, here's a trust set up for the benefit of these pets so that the people who have agreed now to take on this responsibility can be assured that they have some financial support for doing that. Right, because the pets are helpless, right? And they rely on us. And if you love your pet, you can't, you you just said, well, she was lucky enough to have this network of people, but that's not most of us, right? Most of us don't have a network of people that could place an animal. And so what is the most normal thing that will happen in that instance, right? They go to a shelter. Yeah, absolutely. Because let's say that, you know, you're right. Most of us don't have networks of friends that would be able to do that, especially plugged into, um, big animal loving networks and instead and i've seen it happen with children or even surviving spouses where they would just say well this was my spouse's cat or my spouse's dog or my mother's cat or my mother's dog and i'm really not interested in raising a 12 year old 13 year old 14 year old dog or cat and so i think the best thing for it and people have this um unrealistic belief that if you take an animal to a shelter, that it automatically gets a home. They forget that we euthanize as a nation three to five million animals every year because there are not enough homes for every animal that needs one. And for somebody that loves their pet, that would be the most tragic result, really. That would be a horribly tragic result. I have had some clients who have said, you know, realistically, they know that maybe there's not someone that would be willing to take an elderly dog or an elderly cat. And so maybe the best solution would be for that animal to be euthanized at the time the owner passes away. But that tends to be more the exception rather than the rule. Um, I mean, you probably have known animals in your lifetime that as they age, they wouldn't make good pets for other people. Um, but, you know, that's on a case-by-case, -case, individual basis. Yeah, for the most part, we would want our pet to have a good home. I would, absolutely. And I, my husband, I absolutely believe he would take care of my pets. But what I cannot predict for the future is if he were to ever remarry, that that person wouldn't come into the relationship with a preconceived set of notions about where she wants to live. Maybe she doesn't want to live in the country on a piece of property. Maybe she's more interested in living in a condo at the beach. Maybe horses are not her thing because they cost a lot of money and they take a lot of care. 
maybe six dogs is just way too many for most people. And maybe she's allergic to cats. You just don't know what set of circumstances is going to present itself. So rather than take that chance, and and no offense to my husband, but rather than take that chance, I would rather know that I have a plan. And most importantly, if something happened to the two of us together, that that plan would be established so that those animals would be taken care of, that we've identified pet caregivers, the people to provide the day-to-day care and their alternates, that we've established who's going to be the trustee responsible for the day-to-day administration of the assets. And then in my case, um, I've also created what I call an animal care panel, which is a group of friends, part of my network of animal loving people that could then provide guidance to the day-to-day caregiver about difficult decisions like critical care decisions or um, worst case euthanasia and disposition of the pet. Also, isn't it important that you take into consideration what type of pet you have? Like, so for example, you have both horses and dogs who have very different needs as pets. And so somebody that might be well equipped to manage a dog may not be at all equipped to manage the needs of a horse. And that is very, very true because there are a lot of dog lovers in the world that don't have any experience with horses whatsoever. Um, Most horse people have experience with dogs because somehow they tend to go together, but it doesn't always happen the other way around. And certainly anybody who's going to know about horses um, is a person that I would want on my animal care panel to help make some of those difficult decisions. What about pet caregiver compensation? What should people be considering with that? Well, depending on the relationship you have with the person that you choose, um, they may or may not need to actually be compensated, but it certainly would be nice if that person knew that there were sufficient resources to pay for food, for grooming, for medical expenses, for um, boarding or pet sitters if that person, you know, couldn't be there to take care of the animal. So, um, but from a compensation standpoint, maybe you do want to compensate that person. The person that I have in mind is one of my pet caregivers. I would want to compensate her and I might do that in a way that was maybe a little unconventional, but here's a house that you can live in. Bring your own dogs, bring your own horses, and all the expenses are paid. The utilities, the yard work, you know, um, the mortgage, so that this person would essentially live rent-free, and then that would be part of their compensation. And depending on your relationship with that person, maybe they are also, at some point in the future when all the pets are gone, you know, maybe they keep the house. You know, who knows? There's, there's an unlimited number of ways that you can structure pet caregiver compensation, trustee compensation, even ways that you would um, distribute assets for the benefit of the pets, unlimited ways. And it's just important to be able to think about what all those different combinations might be. But I think the important point about that is, is that you actually need to have a real legal plan, correct? Exactly. You can't just have a wish 
um, because a wish is not a plan. It's just wishful thinking. And um, frequently, and, and I know this happens in your practice too, we'll be asking people about these important questions and they'll, their response will be, oh, well, my spouse or my friend, they know what I want. Um, well, that's great, but it's much better if it's in writing. And part of that has to do with potential court involvement or getting a judge involved and then maybe what their views are and how strong the laws are going to protect you and your wishes and the rights of your animals, right? Because that varies by state and by jurisdiction and even by judge. Absolutely. And many states, almost all of the states have now adopted some form of pet trust statute. So we have the legal tools available to us. Um, we just need to make sure that we make educated choices about how to implement that in our lives for our pets. What, um, what do have you seen in terms of what the dangers are in, in court involvement? Like what are some of the things that have or can happen when we allow a situation that's going to have the court involved with our pet planning? Um, okay, so a couple of things I can think of. One is kind of funny, actually, So, and it goes to pet identification. So a lady created a, a trust for the benefit of her black cat, and um, interestingly, this cat lived an extraordinarily long period of time because the caregivers just kept replacing the <laughs> black cat. You could see that happening if you didn't have proper pet identification. So maybe the maybe the uh, pet caregiver had such a good deal that they wanted this cat to live indefinitely. Um, secondarily, you could have heirs that are unhappy that you left um, significant amounts of money for a dog or a cat or a horse, and they want that trust dissolved so that the assets can ultimately come to them. That's um, a situation that comes up probably with more frequency than almost anything else. So I always caution people to be careful about who they're naming as the ultimate beneficiary of the pet trust. And then probably the most famous case recently is the Leona Helmsley case where the New York court decided that $12 million dollars was too much for a dog and that a more appropriate number would be a million dollars. Now I take exception with this because if I'm the pet owner and I have 12 million dollars to leave for my dog, that should be my choice. I don't want someone else substituting their judgment for my judgment when it's my money and my plan. So those are the ones that you're going to probably see the most common. Um, in our Florida statute, there is even a provision in our pet trust statute which gives the judge discretion if they think there's too much money in the trust. So again, calculating these things carefully and not giving people opportunities for challenges. And one of the ways they can avoid that from happening is by documenting what the cost of care really is for that animal so that they're, if you are the type of person that may wish to spend more money on an animal than maybe your next-door neighbor would, that, that somebody's not going to say it's unreasonable because you've shown that you've done it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very justifiable in that way. And... 
you know, usually when I'm helping people figure out how much money we should leave, we talk about, so what are you spending today? So let's say just as an example, you had a cat that you're spending $1,000 a year on. I would say take that number and multiply it by some factor which seems a little unreasonable, like maybe two times or three times. So $3,000 a year times some extraordinarily long life expectancy. So if a cat could live to be 21 years of age, let's say that we've got the longest living cat ever, and it maybe lives to be age 30, so then we would take our $3,000 a year times 30 years, and then we do a mathematical calculation based on the pet's age at the time of our death to decide how much money we should be setting aside for that pet. And the reason being, and, and everyone's aware of this, that as pets age, the cost of medical care can go up dramatically. Just like with people. Absolutely. So I would like to point out um, here in this point that you are a nationally recognized expert on this topic and your clients do in fact want to engage in this type of planning, that you are actually sought out for this type of expertise and this kind of advice. And the reason why I'm pointing this out, Peggy, is because I think that there are people out there, and you and I both know this to be true, that might say, well, this is crazy. Like, who would plan like this for their pet? But you and I both know that there are people that want to. And if you are one of those people, you need to know that these options are available to you and these are the things that you need to be thinking about. Absolutely. And and there are people that would say, I'm not going to plan for my dog Scruffy or my kitty Blackie. And I, I even have clients that say, oh, Peggy, my pets just really are not an important part of my plan. But I still encourage them to at least say who's going to be the pet caregiver, even if it's their kids, because I want to impose, if not a legal, but at, at least a moral um, obligation on behalf of the family members to do something responsible with the pets. What do you wish, if you could think of just one thing, which might be impossible, but what would you wish that people would do differently when it comes to planning for their pets? I wish that they would think of at least two people that could be potential pet caregivers. Um, so even if they do nothing else, if they don't set aside any money, if they don't create a trust for their pet, at least they've named two people that they think would be responsible enough to take care of their pets. So at least a place to start. And is that the place to start? Because if somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, now I have to do something about planning for my pet because this is important to me and I just really haven't given it the thought that I should have in the past, what would be their next step? Um, their next, well, I would say probably, and not to be selfish, but I think it would be important to read a book like all my children wear fur coats so that you can get some ideas about how you might want to plan for your pet, number one. And then number two, I would encourage that person to work with a qualified professional. So not just somebody who is um, knowledgeable about estate planning, but somebody who's also a pet lover that can help them think about um, how the pets fit into the plan best and then I would also want that person that they decide to work with to be somebody who actually has a plan for their own pet. Um, because there's a lot of um, cobblers out there whose children have no shoes. 
And um, I, it's funny because I did have a client ask me the other day. They said, where's your plan? And I keep my estate plan right in my conference room. So I was able to, you know, turn around in my chair, grab my plan off the shelf and actually show them, yes, I have a plan. Um, so I think it's important to work with people who have done what it is that you want to accomplish. And also take the topic as seriously as you do, because you're right, there's a lot of cobblers out there whose children's have no shoes. And part of that is just do the fact that there are attorneys out there that do this kind of thing, but they don't care about this. And so they're not going to make it a priority for you if they don't think it's a priority at all. And so that's something that you should think about, I think, is that, you know, you have to want to work with somebody that actually cares about this topic. Yep. And there are people out there, there are estate planning attorneys who are passionate about this topic. And um, there are organizations like Wealth Council, like the National Network of Estate Planning Attorneys, like Elder Council, different national organizations of estate planning attorneys that you can use to help identify people that might be in your area. Right. But I also agree 100% with your recommendation that somebody read a book like All My Children Wear Fur Coats, because really, when you're sitting down to think about this, being able to actually think it through and having a reference point will enable you to do planning in the best way possible and to really be able to think through all the topics so that when you go in and see the lawyer, you're actually able to really focus the conversation on the things that you think are important. True. And you'll be able to tell when you start speaking with that person too, whether or not you feel like they have a level of interest or competence that would be appropriate for your level of interest. Peggy Hoyt, thank you so much for joining us today on the Smart Planning 101 podcast. And I do want to encourage anybody that is interested in pet planning, planning for your pets in case something happens to you, that you do check out All My Children Wear Fur Coats. It's available on Amazon. And where else can you get it, Peggy? You can also get it at my website, LegacyForYourPet.com. Um, or by contacting me directly through my law firm at Hoyt Bryan, H-O-Y-T-B-R-Y-A-N.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at P.R. Hoyt or at Pet Lawyers. Um, so there are a variety of ways that you can um, stay tuned in to what's happening in the pet planning world. And I will be providing all of the links for that information and all the contact information in the show notes, which I encourage you to visit smartplanning101.com and search for Peggy's episode, and you'll be able to get the links to all of those resources on there. Thank you very much for joining us today, Peggy, and we really appreciate all your expert advice. Thank you, Nicole. Now that you're starting to get the knowledge you need to make better planning decisions, don't let your journey stop there. Nicole's incredible guide, Five Tools You Need to Be Truly in Control of Your Future, includes smart planning options and worksheets you can gain access to right now. And the best part is you can download it for free by going to smartplanning101.com tools right now. Time is flying by, so don't wait another day to download this must-have guide. And we'll see you next time on the Smart Planning 101 podcast.
The information contained within this podcast does not constitute legal or financial advice. It's for general informational purposes only. For advice specific to your situation, consult with your legal or financial professional.